0: Hi, everyone. Welcome back. I'm Brett Morrison. I'm the host for the podcast. Thank you for joining us. And if you're a first-time listener, thank you for coming along. And if you're someone who's coming back time and again, thank you so much for doing that. I really do appreciate you coming back and joining in. Uh, look, it just gives me encouragement to keep going and also to keep sharing the stories of the amazing people that I get onto the show. So thank you so much for that. Now, it's not often that you get to talk to someone who's actually died and then come back, and really share an intimate conversation around what that meant for them and what they experienced. But today, we are really privileged to have someone who has done just that. But also, I always get excited when I get to bring you know someone from my military family along and join in the conversation. So today, I'd love you to hear the story of Mr. John Ward, Look, it's a rather intimate conversation. It's can be a little bit raw in place, and it's very honest of what it's really like to pass and be brought back again. But before we jump into that, I'd just like to thank everyone for coming along again. But if you haven't already jumped across to YouTube, please jump across. I also run a channel over on YouTube where I run short videos a couple of times a month. Sometimes it's every week, sometimes it's a little bit less, sometimes it's a little bit more, but you know, you get the idea. Um, again, Civilized Savage on YouTube, also on Facebook as well, please join us on Facebook, I'd love you to go along, subscribe to the channel, help grow that, because for me it's really important at the moment to try and grow this message, it's, I don't know how to really put it in words sometimes, but I see so many men struggle, and look it's not just men, it's women as well, but particularly men, because men don't tend to talk about it as much as what the women do, we don't... As men, we tend to keep it inside ourselves too because we have to be strong and need to keep you know this brave face on all the time. But I know what it's like to be hurting. I know what it's like to hurt inside. And so for me, it's just important at the moment to share this knowledge, share this experiences not just of mine, but also of other people as well. People just like you. you know, we, we don't have all the answers and we, we live in perfect lives. I know if, on social media, we try to portray that we all have these perfect lives going on. But the reality is that we don't. The reality is that we are human. We are imperfect beings trying to do the best that we can. And I think if we can do that, we can share this message, share the stories of other people who are learning as we go along because that's really what life is about. The more challenges that we have, the more mistakes that we make, the more we can learn, the more that we can grow. And the way to accelerate that learning is to learn from other people's mistakes and other people's stories and other people's experiences. And I really love the way that people are... So willing to share those stories with me in these interviews and on the podcast, but also share some of the insights that I can then share with you through my YouTube videos. And some of them, look, most of them are under 15 minutes, so they don't go for long. Um, So I'd really appreciate if you jump across there, hit the subscribe button and and join in some of those conversations there as well. Without uh, holding you back any longer, let's jump in and let's start our conversation with Mr. John Ward. Welcome along, and today I have a very special guest, Uh, it's Mr. John Ward, and John and I worked on and off together for quite a few years now, Uh, we've even done a couple of road trips together too, John, I believe, so thank you very much for joining me on the show today.
1: Uh, My pleasure, Brett, thanks for inviting me.
0: Yeah, look, John actually has a very special story, so it's not very often that you get to meet someone that has actually gone through the experience of passing and then being revived and brought back to life again. So John has very graciously agreed to come on the show and explain, I guess, what that experience has been like and then the impact of that and how it's changed his life. But before we get into the really deep and meaningful stuff, John, just, just a bit of background about who you are, where you grew up. Look, I know that uh, you did actually grow up in, in Manchester, is that right?
1: Yeah, I I was... I was born on the south coast of England because my, my father was in the Navy. And then when he left the Navy, we moved up to Manchester. So that's my, my strongest memories of living in England are of living in Manchester.
0: And I, and I believe that because you're a local, you go for Manchester City and not Man United. Is, is that how it plays oh, out? I,
1: I do indeed. Yeah, that's how it plays out. All the Manchester United supporters live outside of Manchester. That's how the story goes. Um, I'm sure you might get people who are fans of the red side of Manchester calling in to correct
0: me there. But... um.
1: Yeah. That's how those those of us who are blue fans like to sell the story anyway.
0: Absolutely. And look, I'll go with that because I believe um, Man City have also bought out, was it Melbourne Heart? And they've now become um, Melbourne City.
1: Yeah, yeah, that, that's right. That's right. So uh, I think that's kind of cool that even, you know, where I've moved to here in Melbourne, that they, they've got a, a franchise of the club.
0: Yeah, and I like that because I'm pretty big fans of the um, the Melbourne club. Um, so that, that's good. It's, it's amazing that they've actually chosen to follow you around. So you must be fairly important to them.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that's that's a nice spin. I, I, I like that. Yeah, I'll, I'll stick with that.
0: Yeah, fantastic. Uh, could you just give us a bit of background, so like your family, brothers, sisters? Um, yeah, was, uh, yeah. So um, was like growing up.
1: Uh, Yeah, so we we came out to Australia when I was a kid and I had this shocking Manchester accent, Um, got teased for it in school and I made sure I got rid of it pretty quickly. Uh, I'm I'm one of three children. I've got an older sister who's five years older and a younger sister who's five years younger. Mum and dad are are still with us. Uh, Unfortunately, they're in uh, a nursing home in Essendon, kind of in the middle of this uh, coronavirus thing that's going on at the moment, but luckily not directly affected by it. So, you know, I'm, I'm... that's constantly in my mind that there's there's that threat for them. But um,
0: yeah.
1: I'm really glad they brought us out here to Australia. I think we have had opportunities that none of my cousins back in England have had and we we really are very, very lucky in this country in so many ways.
0: Yeah, I think a lot of us miss that, don't we? Especially for a lot of us that have grown up here. We just assume that yeah. the way life is. And I know it wasn't until I've travelled overseas and, you know, I went to the Philippines for a work trip and then also New Guinea. And I came back with with a whole new level of gratitude. Um, it was quite uh, yeah. interesting to see just how actually the majority of the world do live.
1: Yeah, yeah. We we enjoy uh, benefits that are just far and away better than most of the World, yeah. it's not all of the world and when i relay my story i'll will actually touch on that because that that directly affected me uh, in fact
0: oh wow yeah that's great to hear so we might just jump into it then jonathan if you could um, share like yeah, that, yeah, the, yeah. what happened how it happened and what sort of things then played out as a result of that
1: yeah yeah so look in in my work i'm in the military as well like my father and i I've got a fairly, well, certainly when this happened to me last year, I, I had a fairly high-pressure job. But one Saturday morning, I was lying in bed um, just reading the news on the phone. My wife was overseas with work. Uh, my son was at home still in bed. I think it was about 8 o'clock in the morning. I had what I thought was uh, indigestion. And of course, looking back, why would you wake up in the morning with indigestion? Because um, I hadn't eaten anything for, you know, seven or eight hours. Because you're but, and hard take a and heart attack is not right. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. You know, so I I ended up. It was a heart attack. But of course, uh, as I don't know whether this is the male thing or whatever, we try and explain things away. Or oh, it's you know can't be a heart attack. I'm I'm only fifty two. I'm I'm young. I'm fit. Uh, I do a lot of bike riding. This can't be a heart attack. You know, you're you're trying to trying to rationalise it. But I'm I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. But so I was lying there in bed thinking I've got this indigestion. Went and had a glass of water that seemed to take it away, but it just it got progressively worse. Now, the stupid thing is I was lying in bed thinking the minute I call an ambulance, my next posting in the military will be off because I, I had a dream job as a in an overseas posting set up ready to go. It was only eight weeks away. And, of course, stupidly, this is what's going through my head, uh-huh. how it's going to affect my career. Yeah. Not thinking that it might actually kill me, um, but more concerned about what effect it's going to have on on my career and you know I look back at that and think what a stupid thing to be thinking but a, a, anyway I I decided that look I pretty much was going to have to call the ambulance because the pain was getting progressively worse so I thought I better wake up my young boy he's in his early 20s and studying uni by the time I got from my bedroom door to his bedroom door the pain went from a three or four out of ten and up to an 11, it, it just, it went through the roof. So I got to his door, I'm curled up on the floor in front of his door, banging on the door saying, mate, you're going to have to wake up and, and come in. He must have sensed the panic in my voice. He opened the door, took one look at me, jumped over me, called triple zero. And and this is where I was talking before about uh, how in Australia we we have access to amazing, all sorts of amazing stuff. I can tell you this is no word of a lie. When Noah, my son, put the phone down after calling the ambulance, we could already hear the sirens in the distance because they they had him on the phone for about three minutes while they just talked through what was going on. When he put the phone down, we could already hear the sirens in the distance. I've since found out that we live only two kilometres away from a St John's Ambulance Depot, but that was just amazing, absolutely amazing.
0: That's incredible, isn't
1: it? and it really is. I, I, I'm still stunned at just how quick that was, and just the the calm of the dispatcher on the phone, just the way the whole thing unfolded. So, they switched-on ambulance crew turn up at my door, and again, things were really quick. Within thirty seconds, they had, you know, stickers all over my chest, a machine tracing my heart, and this guy just looked at me and said, "Mr. Ward, you are having a heart attack. You've got a blockage in an artery. We're going to the hospital right now." Now, oh, even though by this stage I knew that this chest pain it was it was stratospheric pain. Um, so obviously I knew something was really wrong, but for him to tell me it was a heart attack was quite confronting. Yeah. So bundled me into the back of this ambulance. They called a a mica ambulance, that's a mobile intensive care ambulance, to meet us in Laverton, um, which is on the way to the hospital so we met this other ambulance that is equipped with all sorts of other extra special you know machines that go beep um,
0: for people that, in a situation touches. that sounds Sorry? Like, that sounds like the technical term
1: that that's that is the technical term for it so they they shifted into this ambulance and that's when things really started to get weird because um th- this pain was was through the roof they pumped me full of some sort of amazing juice that was meant to take the pain away, but it, it didn't even touch it. They gave me two shots of, I don't know whether it was ketamine or, or what it was, but yeah. this stuff didn't even touch the sides. Um, I was in a world of pain and then I don't know if you've ever seen the Leonardo DiCaprio movie, Inception. Have you seen that movie? It's about dreams. No. No. Well, in, in the film, the, the, there are dream sequences sequences where reality seems to fold in on itself. And that's that's how I can best describe what happened next. I, I could I could tell that things were going south rapidly and then suddenly things just kind of um the whole world seemed to go diagonal. That, that's probably the best way to describe oh, yeah. it. And yeah. the lights are out and all gone. It, it this is where it's hard to explain because time the time sequence of things didn't exactly follow. It certainly wasn't a sequence because there was another point I recall saying to the, the the paramedic in the back, back of the ambulance, I feel like I'm going, I I can tell her I'm going. And she said, no, no, I've just brought you back. So my memory is kind of patchy probably because I was full of all sorts of drugs, but there's, there's a few things about dying that um, I think are really interesting. The, The first thing is that it's actually incredibly easy. It's 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 not difficult to do. I know that sounds a bit weird, but it's just like one minute you're here, the next I'm scared or frightened. It's just I was suddenly I had stepped into into the next world, if you like. Yeah. Um, The other thing was I had this. As I knew I was passing, I had this incredible need to reach out for human touch. So this poor paramedic, she's trying to inject things in and set equipment up, and I'm, I'm trying to grab her hands just to hold her hand so I can have that human touch as I pass on. Noah, my son, was in the front of the ambulance, and my wife was overseas in Malaysia, so I, I was craving that human touch. I, I think that was, that was almost primal, just reaching out for someone as you know, you're about to pass away.
0: Yeah, that's incredible.
1: Yeah. Now, uh, uh, another few things. I'll tell you this much, and for free. And I, I tell this to a lot of people. I was not thinking about work as I passed away. So <laughs> those those earlier stupid thoughts I'd had about maybe I should or shouldn't call the ambulance. You know, they very quickly became irrelevant. And what what was in my mind as I was passing or what I wanted to be thinking about was about my wife, my son, my daughter, about my family and about God. These are the things that I was trying to think. Now I say trying because the back of an ambulance when somebody is dying is a place full of pandemonium. This nurse was trying to set up what's called a Lucas machine. It's a machine that will sit on top of your chest and give you chest compressions She was trying to get a main line into my arm. She was, you know, there was a whole lot of stuff going on because by this stage, we were two ambulances in tandem because they switched me into into another ambulance. So we had two paramedics in the back of the ambulance, you know, diving for stuff. So trying to maintain concentration and almost meditate as, as you pass away to think about the things you want to think about is actually quite difficult when there's all this chaos going on. Yeah. But um, these were the things I wanted to be in my mind as I passed away. I wanted my last thoughts to be of my family and those close to me and of God. Um, I'm not a particularly religious person, but I would call myself very spiritual. Um yeah. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm sure there is something on the other side. I, I'm not exactly sure what it is, um, but... Yeah, these are the thoughts that I that I wanted to leave this earth with.
0: And it's funny you talk about that that time aspect. Um, you know, you, you're not thinking about work. It's actually the connections that you made. And was there a, was there a moment when you go, I don't have enough time. There's things I still want to do.
1: Um, look, oh, that's that's really interesting because I no i I don't recall thinking any any regrets or any anything that um you know I, I should have done or i shouldn't have done now of course you know i've made plenty of mistakes in my past and and if you asked me do i have regrets yeah i could probably list a few but it's interesting that when when crunch time came um they they were not they were nowhere to be seen which is really um that's it, a really good question brett because it's not it's not something I've thought about since it happened, but no, I didn't have any thoughts of regrets or things I should have done or anything like that, which um, I think is a kind of good thing. I, I I don't think you'd want to be passing away thinking, you know, geez, I really wish I'd done this or I wish I'd done that. And, and this comes back to, you know, I've said to people, you don't want to be lying on your deathbed thinking about work. You, 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 in fact, I don't think anybody would lie on their deathbed thinking, geez, I wish I'd spent more time at work. Yeah. And I think it it helps put work back into perspective, I think, as well.
0: Yeah. I have to say, I have seen that shift um, in yourself, especially you know, being at work a bit more. Oh, look, I'm not going to say laid back because you're always a fairly laid back sort of guy anyway. Yeah. Um, And there's still still, still a a very high level of professionalism there, but it's the, I think some people at work just seem to have this manic fervour around them that they've always got these deadlines and if they don't get it done today, then the whole world is going to implode when really that's not the case. Yeah. I I don't know if that makes sense. I don't know,
1: Fred. It's interesting you say that because I I think I was the sort of person that, I've always been fairly... um, do know how to put it but deadlines do matter to me and I, I know that before I had the heart attack I had a whiteboard in my office full of tasks I needed to complete before this overseas posting took place and I'm I'm kind of one of those ducks on the water I may look laid back and relaxed but inside I often do you know think too much about deadlines and about you know making sure I get work done and that sort of thing mm. but I think what this experience has told me is um, I need to be easier on myself. Yeah. Because I, I certainly, you know, if others don't meet deadlines that I sit down, I'm always happy to, you know, negotiate with them and, and work through things so that we can get stuff done. But I was, I didn't always afford myself the leeway that I afforded others. Yeah. Now, that, that change since the heart attack has not been instant. I, I still have to work at it, but I find myself now, you know, when my eyes pop open, whereas in the past I might have immediately jumped out of bed, I think to myself, you know what, I'm going to spend another half an hour in bed or another hour in bed. Um, you know, the, the world is not going to end if I get out of bed a little bit later or if, if I turn up to work 10 minutes later than I said I would or, or something like that. So I've I've tried to be a little bit easier on myself now Part of that is physical because, unfortunately, I've I have done some permanent heart damage courtesy of being four minutes with my heart stopped. But um, yeah, yeah. So a long time to be out, isn't it? it? it is it is a long time to be out. Um, and just probably to round out that story for your listeners, I yeah. I didn't see any bright white lights on the other side. I didn't um, I didn't have any particular religious experience on the other side because. People do talk about a life review and, and meeting loved ones on the other side. But I do recall when I came back being incredibly angry and frustrated that I was back in this broken body. Oh, um, wow. There was this, uh, yeah, and you, Brett, we've known each other a long time. You'll know that I'm a fairly calm, you know, slow to anger sort of person, but I, I, was, I was really uh, peed off when I, when I came back to into full consciousness that I was back in this broken body. So um, I, I thought that was interesting. And I remember trying to rip out the line that was in my arm, um, fighting with the paramedic, but she actually said, because she visited me some weeks later, Ashley was her name. I'll never forget it. It's also my daughter's name. Yeah, no. uh, amazing lady who saved my life. But she said to me, I was really happy when you came back fighting because I knew you were going to be okay. Because she says she brings She's brought some people back, and they just don't come back with that same, you know, spunk and passion and energy that that, that I was luckily able to come back with. But yeah. yes, four minutes is a long time, and I, I I have noticed that I I do have some concentration issues since I've I've come back, um, which I, I put down to the fact that I was I was out for four minutes.
0: Mm-hmm. That's interesting. You came back angry. That's a, that's a really great insight, isn't it? it come back and it is a different world isn't it so if, when you pass i suppose if you have no recollection of what was on the other side but you come back and that recollection is of coming back into a broken body broken world in many regards too isn't it At the especially at the moment
1: oh yeah yeah well, and that's that, yeah that's, that's another crazy thing so i had to spend you know i spent three months at home recovering uh, after this heart attack which i had in november last year so november 2019 of course by the time I got back to work, this coronavirus had, had started to hit. So I find myself back at home working from home. So I've effectively, I've had some stints at work, but I've effectively been at home since November last year. So I'm well and truly over this lockdown stuff.
0: Yeah. And so how how is that impacting you? With because like exercise is obviously something that you need to do to um as yeah. like recovery and obviously. You're limited to do that now and there's also i guess there's also a risk of you going outside doing that as well
1: yeah I now having had a heart attack i'm in a, a high risk category because this coronavirus uh, does seem to you have worse outcomes if you've got heart issues put it that way yeah. um the cold weather doesn't help the exercise regime either i've got to say um i know i should harden up and get out there with my military background but um yeah, I, I get out for walks and, and a bike ride when I can. I, I haven't got back into the running, but I was, I've always been a keen cyclist. And, in fact, in the months before my heart attack, I rode my bike up Mount Buffalo. That's, that's the sort of level of fitness that I had.
0: Wow, um, that's pretty keen.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I've, I've always been really keen. So that's, that's been another thing, I think, is the, the psychological readjustment of not being able to do what I used to do. Now I think once the summer months kick in and we can get out of our houses again i I have every confidence that I could still ride a bike a decent distance. in fact, before lockdown really kicked in, I was able to ride forty or fifty k without too much trouble. um but I, I've just got to be mindful I just need to give myself a bit more of a lead time as yeah so I you know I guess ramp up to doing doing things like that, and it's the psychological adjustment that has been probably one of the most difficult aspects of what has happened.
0: Mm. Can you, can you expand on that a little bit?
1: Yeah. So the loss of that posting opportunity overseas was something that was um, difficult to deal with. It's because that was a posting. I had long sought out and I'd, I'd aligned myself for, I'd, I'd studied for, I'd done previous postings that set me up for that. Um, I, I had done a lot of research into it. I. I'd done some of the courses we'd, you know, my wife and I, we were only eight weeks away from that posting when I had my heart attack. So we were spooled up, ready to go for this dream job overseas. My wife had organized remote work, you know, all the ducks were in a row kind of thing. Um, And then to have this heart attack to, to then dash all of that was just, it, it took a lot of getting used to now. My my bosses to their eternal uh you know, I'm I'm eternally grateful that they didn't say to me, No, you can't go overseas. They left that decision to me. Now, when I consider that the posting was to a third world country where the healthcare was nowhere near as good as it is here in Australia, um, I, I had to take that into consideration as well. And I thought on on balance, I I, I couldn't take that opportunity uh without placing myself at great risk and of course after a heart attack your priorities change so whilst work was still important and it was still part of who i am suddenly it was a whole lot less important than it had been so the decision almost made itself but it still wasn't um it, it, it's a regret that i have i, I guess but th- there could have been no other decision but it's still a, re- a regret that i have
0: and that, I think that would have played out being harder for you too because I know that posting came with a with a you know a senior promotion as well and I know that promotion still came through but was that guaranteed if you decided to not take it I guess that would have been playing out in the back of your mind at the same time so it's very career driven and you know career for for men I think is also yeah. the family and provision and many other many other yeah. aspects of it as well
1: yeah most definitely um look I've got to say the the promotion that went along with that overseas posting—that that was funny. I was only four days away from that promotion ceremony as well when I had the heart attack. So that was oh. that. That was tough. But uh, again, to my boss's great credit, um, they called and said, "Look, uh, we still intend to promote you." And that was very quickly after I made the decision not to go overseas. So, That's but cool. to answer your question, it, it didn't really come into—I didn't factor it in that, that in my thinking because whilst it would have been nice to have. The promotion. At the end of the day, those health concerns, yeah. uh, my family's concerns, my, my priorities, are a major factor in my thinking. So when they did call me and say, Look, we, we will still promote you and we will make you uh, another offer, you know, I, I felt so well looked after. And, and that was another thing. In the time after the heart attack, the support I got from work, from friends, from family, it was humbling, Brett. It was really humbling. I must have had sixty visitors in the two weeks after I had my heart attack, wow. and yep. I was I was almost euphoric in those weeks after it because I'd survived and I had all these people coming to visit to to wish me well, and it was um it was really nice. I've got to say it it's a shame that I had to go through a heart attack to experience that, but I will be forever grateful to all those people yeah. that reached out.
0: Yeah. And look, I'm not too sure how, like, obviously that meant a lot to you, but I'm not too sure how you felt before that. But I know, like, if, if I, if I may just relate back to, you know, I guess my father passed uh, just over 12 months ago. And the mm. number of people that reached out to me at that time mm. was, was really touching. And it might sound, yeah, to say, because, you know, a lot of people th- see that, like, you know, similar to yourself, very calm on the, on the outside. But when I came out of that experience, there's a real sense of I mattered. And that's, yeah, that's yeah, strange, yeah. but before that, it's almost like I didn't matter. Um, because for me to feel that I mattered, then, and this is the, the conversation in my head was going, well, if I feel like I mattered now, did that mean I felt that I didn't matter before? And maybe in some ways, I did feel like I didn't matter. Um, and I think that's something that happens yeah, with I men as we progress I, through I, life. We, we just yeah. end up in the... the business of being busy you know we go to work yeah. ride and we just seem to be you know this, this check that comes in we pay the bills and we we do what we have to do but how we feel what we do doesn't always feel like it matters even though even though deep down it does but when something like this happens you get the sense of going yes wow i do matter you know i, I don't know yeah if that yeah me. i, I...
1: I think you fit the nail on the head. I even had friends I haven't spoken to in years reach out that had heard about it and and reached out to me and I just I just to have that experience made having the heart attack almost worth it um you know you, you don't want to have a heart attack that's no. that's bad news all around but um would i would I change anything? Probably not because all the amazing things that happened in those weeks and months since I've had that heart attack were just um, I think have made me a better person, uh, and like you've just said, when when all these people reach out to you and show you that you really matter to them, it's it's really um. It it's it's invigorating. It's 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 such a positive experience that it makes having had the heart attack worthwhile.
0: Yeah. Now you mentioned earlier that it has changed your priorities and and actually the actual fact that it's changed you as a man. Could you sort of expand a little bit on? How it has changed your priorities and how it's actually shaped you as a person.
1: Yeah. So um look, whilst I'm still work's still incredibly important to me and I I I value what I do and my military career has defined a lot of who I am. But I think for the first time since I joined, you know, almost 25 years ago, I have I'm now thinking to life beyond my career to How I can give back. What will fill my days when I'm no longer wearing a uniform and I I think to myself, I want to to somehow give back to the community. Uh, I'm not sure what form that would take, but I think having had an experience like that, having had your priorities change, um, like I said, my job's still important to me, but I'm, I'm looking beyond that at other opportunities where I can give back more fully. I don't know whether that's to the community, to individuals. Like I said, I haven't really thought that through, but I'm now starting to think of life beyond the job that I do now. Um, obviously also family. I mean, family's always been incredibly important to me, but even more so now. Um, I think I mentioned earlier, my parents are in a nursing home. I, I've i them way, way more often in the, the times after my heart attack because I, I that connection with them has always been important to me, but I wanted to squeeze every opportunity I could out of that whilst they're still here with us. Unfortunately, they've both got different forms of dementia, so we're kind of on borrowed time. This coronavirus thing, that's that's frustrated me a little bit. Um, and then just with my immediate family, with my, my wife, my son and my daughter, um, just making sure that I take advantage of, of opportunities to just to be there for them uh, uh, whenever, when, whenever the opportunity allows. Uh, again, I, I was always there for them previously, but I'm just more, much more cognizant of, of that now, of making sure I take advantage of those opportunities when they present them.
0: Yeah, and I would agree with that. So one of the things that is really important to me, and I've really made the conscious effort, and that, as you know, like I, I was commuting for work for many years,
1: yeah. one of the things
0: that I really try to do is that when I'm home with, with the girls is be present so it's, it's one thing to be home and be here and be in the same house and be in the same room but there's another thing to, yes. to be yes. present with them and actually not just hear what they're saying but actually hear them and feel them and, yes. And, and, yes. and really take in what it is that they're conveying, what message they're conveying and what they're feeling at the same time You know, and that has been a, a big shift and I find that you know, while they're awake, then my time is really their time, and I try to push all the other stuff that I I want to do for myself, sort of after that. But yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. And that, that's so true. You know, it's it's putting down that mobile phone, putting down those distractors, and when when someone in the home is talking to you, just giving them your undivided attention. But it's interesting as you're talking there, Brett. You're talking about putting them first, really important. But the other the other important thing that I've discovered through all this is making sure I have some space and some time for myself because that's, I was probably of, of all the people in my life, I was probably giving myself uh, the raw end of the deal. Um, and I wasn't a martyr in any way, shape or form. It's just that with work and with home, with everything going on, you quickly find that there's not much time left for yourself. And I think this is probably a little bit of a men's issue as well is that, you know, you, there's this, um, almost this expectation that you'll, you'll wear a lot on your shoulders and you'll, you know, you can, you can always add more but I'll still keep going. Kind of. yeah. That, that can-do attitude can also end up cruelling you and I think that was a big part of, of why I had a heart attack. I was just trying to do more and more and more. But, uh, you know, I'm not a machine um, and, and that's what, it, it probably took that heart attack to, to give me that slap to realise that, hey, you need to spend time for yourself and look after yourself and, and make sure that you're one of those important priorities in your life. Yeah, it's good advice. Yeah, but, but um, good advice, but I, I paid, paid a high price to be, a, to be able to give it.
0: <laughs> well, I think that puts you in a position of authority, doesn't it, though?
1: Yeah, that, that, that's right. It's, um, yeah, it's, it's kind of a badge of honour, but it, it did take that. It, it, and it's funny, it's like someone flicking a switch. It's like when you become a father, isn't it? It's like someone yeah. flicks a switch and your brain suddenly gets rewired and you, you go, oh, my God, I've got this small person that I'm now responsible for, and it completely changes your view of the world. Well, a heart attack's a little bit like that. It's this medical intervention that not only changes you medically, but it, it, someone flicks a switch and it changes your priorities.
0: Do you find you have a better relationship to death? That probably sounds like an odd question, but I think in Western culture we have a, no, a really poor relationship. With yeah, us. we seem to fear. Yeah. to do everything we can to avoid dying to the point where we stop living.
1: Yeah, yeah. Look, that's a really good question, Brett. Um, I don't think I ever had um necessarily a a morbid fear of death. I, I'm not, you know. I, I think having a a faith or a spirituality helps with that. But to answer your question, I think any fear of death that I may have had is now almost completely gone because it, as I said before, it's, it's very easy. It's, it's quite easy. One a minute, the next minute you're not. Sharon Stone spoke about this in an interview with Oprah Winfrey. I remember seeing on the, um, on YouTube and she says that it's really close. It's always there. Death is actually always with us. And Anything can happen, and suddenly we have stepped over to the other side. But my fear of this happening again, I actually think there are far far worse ways to die because it was quite quick. Um, from the moment Noah called the ambulance to the time my heart stopped, maybe it was twenty minutes, and it was painful. But um, it, it you know there are far worse ways to go, and my any fear of death that I now have has gone. Now that doesn't mean you know, I'm, I'm, I am fearful of this happening again because I kind of know how it would unfold. I, I certainly, you know, don't want to have another heart attack, but we all have to die of something, I guess. And um, yeah, there are probably worse ways to go.
0: Yeah. And do you think that your relationship with time has changed? Because I think most people, I don't know if they fear death or is it the fear that they're going to run out of time?
1: Yeah, I think so. And I think that's why I. I now have this desire—not a desire yet—but I'm, I'm looking beyond my life in the military because time is finite. I think that's what it's taught me. We we often live as if we're going to live forever, but it is finite, and I'd love to—I'd love to help people in the time I've got left. Um, I'd love to learn more, maybe go back to study, but I am conscious of the fact that time is. Finite, and yeah. we think we're going to live forever and last forever, but hey, we're not. And you know, hold your hold your loved ones close. I always say, love as if you're going to die tomorrow, but learn as if you're going to live forever. Mm. Um, yeah.
0: So, what would you go back and study? Because I know you are, are very well accomplished academically. Um, you know, you speak multiple yeah. languages fluently. So, what would you go back and study?
1: Oh, that's that's a great question, Brett. Oh, oh, do You know what? I think I'd go completely from, I don't know, like fine art or architecture or or something or theology is something I wouldn't mind. Well, um, something completely different to what I've been doing for the past twenty five years that maybe would uh, pander to my creative side.
0: Yeah. Do you find but that? You- Suppress yeah, your oh, in the role that you do, like in the work that you do.
1: So, sorry, say so again, Brett. You just broke up a bit there.
0: Yeah, no, no worries. I was just saying, do you feel like you've had to suppress your creative side, like being in the military for as long as you have been? Because I know we, we, we had a quick discussion about this the other day. How I guess both of us, sometimes yeah. feel like we, we may not be the best fit, but we've both been around there for a long time and um, we've both, I think, both succeeded reasonably well. But creativity yeah, yeah, is not always yeah. something that is you know, a high value in there.
1: It's, it's interesting because um, you know, military problems often require unique and innovative solutions in order to overcome them, um, you know, because battles never unfold the way people think they're going to unfold. And so you probably, True. you do need a force for creative thinkers to, to think of innovative solutions to, you know, intractable problems. But by its very nature, the the military, the fact that we wear uniforms and we march and we have a hierarchical rank structure, we have all things in place that almost um, run counter to that creativity. But I know that, you know, I've got bosses that value innovation and creativity, but to answer your question, I guess there are times when I've felt that I have been a little bit hamstrung, um, and that's no fault of the organisations. It's just that, you know, oil painting, for example, is not a skill that we necessarily... Uh, need in the military although i know there have been wartime artists for example but um necessarily sometimes i think you do have to uh probably curtail some of that creativity and innovation because you also need to build teams and in order to work yeah. together in a team you know i think you need to sometimes toe the party line or or, or toe that whatever that central theme is but um It's an interesting dilemma from a a military background, but I I don't feel like I've been particularly hamstrung. It's just that I think by its very nature, the military um, with its uniforms and its its structure doesn't always lend itself to that.
0: No, and I think the beauty of looking beyond the career is that the deadlines aren't there, isn't it? So if you want to do a piece of creativity, you're not saying, hey, I need this out by Friday lunchtime. Um, Or people come up with an innovative solution on how we're going to do that battlefield attack. It's a case of, actually, I can can sit by the river and paint.
1: Yeah. Or, or, or write poetry or, you know, whatever, whatever that might be. Um, Now that's, you know, that's not to say that you can't paint or or write poetry while you're in the military, but I think having that, having that headspace, and, and this is another thing that I've, I'm trying to do more of since I've had my heart attack is creating that headspace and that opportunity to do things that uh, I want to do now my job is still fairly high pressured so I do find it quite hard to to let go sometimes so I'll often find myself sitting in front of the TV and not maybe be watching a Netflix series instead Um, so I think when I'm retired, I probably then have more of the energy and, and more, t- more time and more mental headspace to pursue those other things that I'd like to do.
0: Yeah. Because it is important, isn't it, just sometimes to unwind it. And I, and I quite often say, and I'm sure the listeners have heard me say this before, it's, it's okay to sit back and, and maybe do a binge on Netflix, whatever, as long as there's intent behind it. And sometimes that intent is, I just need to unwind my mind. And I think that's the difference between saying yeah. watching Netflix and reading a book Because when you're reading a book, your mind is still thinking like you're, you're imagining all the stuff. Whereas when you watch a movie, all that, all that gets taken away. Like the movie does the imagining imagining for you. So it doesn't <laughs> allow you to just
1: <laughs> Yeah. I, I, um, I think Netflix binge watching, it's, it's definitely a, a 21st century affliction. Um, but you're right. it, it it takes all the effort and the work away and you're just sitting there in front of the TV. Now I'm, I, I don't like doing that for long periods of time, but I I did find after I had my heart attack when I was in those first few weeks, when I was really, really tired and I, I couldn't do much else, I was doing that. But what I did for the first time in a long time was just read for leisure. And that was so relaxing. Um, it was so nice. Uh, so sitting in front of Netflix, Probably not the most constructive thing to do, but uh, sometimes that's all you can do. I think, like yeah. you just said,
0: yeah. And like I think, if, as long as there's intent behind it, it has a has a place.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's 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 very true.
0: Yeah. So a question I would like to ask you is like, how do you think all this has shaped you as a, as a man? Like I know you you've, you talked about your faith there before as well, but and talked you talked talk very briefly about the impact of being able to connect with your parents, but as, as men, we have roles in our lives as husbands, as fathers, sons, brothers. Um, yes. You know, how, how do you feel this has all shaped you in that regard?
1: Interesting question, Brett. Um, one, of the, one of the things I noticed was um, my wife, about three months after my heart attack and just before the coronavirus lockdown uh, kicked in, my wife and I travelled back to Malaysia where she's got family Um. And I remember we're standing by the baggage carousel and as a man, you're the dude that pulls the bags off the baggage carousel. That's, that's how I've always done things. You know, I, I think, you know, a small thing, but I went to reach for this 25 kilo bag and my wife, who's a much smaller diminutive lady, uh, you know, than I am um, kind of held me back and said, no, I'm, I'm pulling the bag off the carousel and I'm glad you did because I, I, I just didn't have the strength to do it at the time. But it's, as a man, you kind of feel a bit diminished and a bit embarrassed. as other people are watching this poor little lady struggle with this big suitcase off a baggage carousel yeah. and the bloke standing behind her. You know, I don't, I'm, I'm not, I don't look fat. I look quite fit. So I, people probably look at me thinking, why isn't that guy helping? So I actually found to answer your question, the, the challenge of, you know, it is, is your masculinity diminished when you can't do those sorts of things and having to come to terms with that. Mm. Um, And I I found there was a bit of time there where, in fact, even now, like some mates helped another friend of mine move house on the weekend. I'd have loved to have gone in and helped them, but um, you know, hauling, you know, entertainment units and, and beds and, and TVs and things like that is probably not something that I can really do with as much confidence anymore. So um, it, it's probably impacted my, my sense of masculinity in, in that respect, um, not being able to go out for a run um, and do those fitness things that I did previously. That's kind of the physical side of things. From a, a mental side of things, I actually feel much more comfortable in my own skin. Um, because even though I have those misgivings about my physical abilities uh, now, you know, having gone through that, having lived to the other side, having had all these people come to visit me afterwards, and and people reaching out, um, and seeing the way my son behaved on the day, he really stepped up to the plate, and I was so proud of him. I kind of felt like I'd I'd done that job of raising him right, because when the rubber hit the road, when crunch time came, and my son has He's on, the, he's on the spectrum, so he has uh, some issues. But he just really stepped up to the plate, including making some difficult phone calls to people whilst I was lying in the emergency department where I, I neglected to mention my heart stopped again for a second time, but that was only momentarily. But, you know, it was touch and go there for quite a few hours after I'd had the heart attack. My blood pressure was hovering at dangerously low levels. Yeah. So he made these difficult phone calls with my last bit of consciousness before I was kind of slipping in and out, I said to him, you need to call this person, this person, and this person, including my wife. So he made these difficult calls. So I kind of felt that I'd done my job as a father in just seeing the way he, he reacted in in that situation. So, you know, how has it changed me as a man kind of, it's kind of mixed, I guess, to to sum up.
0: Yeah. It does sound like that. I think that, that's a really good point you raise about masculinity because I think there are men who get injured. Um, and I guess we see this in the veteran community a bit. They come back injured physically and mentally, and it does play on their mind about
1: yeah
0: um their masculinity. And I guess we do we do see a high suicide rate among our veterans for that reason, um, which is very, very sad. Yeah. Yep. Um, do you think that... Some of that mind game is now starting to play out for people in this global pandemic. Because you, you talked about being in lockdown since November, so you, you had a, probably about three or four months head start on everybody about understanding what being in <laughs> home, home arrest is like. Um, yeah, yeah. Do you think that's playing out for other people?
1: Oh, I don't know because um, well, maybe because we're all we're all locked at home, and there's this frustration. It's kind of being locked in a body that doesn't quite you know, do what you want it to do. Yeah, so right. maybe liken it to that, that, that anger I felt at coming back into a broken body. We are, we're all trapped in our homes at the moment. And there's probably a deep sense of frustration and people are maybe having to look inward more because they, they really don't have too much choice when you finish binge watching the Netflix and you've, you know, you, you've done all you can. Sorry. There's nothing else after that, is there? Yeah, that's right. So what you're left with are, the people that you're living with, you have to talk to them and yourself. Yeah. So I think in the midst of all this, you know, unfortunately, there's there's probably been a, a bit of a spike in domestic violence and things like that. But I'd like to think there's been an equally, you know, fruitful spike in people's relationships and their relationships with themselves as well during this time of lockdown, because you, you probably have to spend more time talking with your significant other, for example, and, Mm-hmm. and maybe meditating or, or getting in touch with yourself
0: while you're at it as well.
1: No, strange times we're living in at the moment. Um, very, very weird.
0: Mm. Yeah. Any thoughts on that?
1: Yeah. Look, I, I think um, all of us can do our part. I, I, you know, we see plenty of stuff on the news about people doing the wrong thing, not wearing masks and lecturing bunning staff and that sort of thing. And I, I think that's, you know, terrible sort of behavior. Um, I think this is a time of community where, no, 99% of people are doing the right thing and we're pulling together and and people are reaching out to each other. I've talked to neighbours that I haven't talked to in a long time. Um, I think this is, it's a terrible thing to go through, but it's also bringing people together as well, for the most part, you know, idiotic behaviour notwithstanding.
0: Yeah, you do get a bit of that. Um, I guess one of the things that I'll really say is... There seems to be a lot of fear. And, you know, I guess I you know, touched on that point earlier where talk about people are that are afraid of, of dying. I think that seems to be a fairly consistent message of better, how dangerous it is coming through the media. And some people get that afraid that they're locking, they are prepared to actually lock themselves away um, and, yeah. maybe, and maybe not live fully and with vitality. For a, for a significant period of, of life. We don't want to show how long this will last for. So you just need to see how long people are prepared to actually lock themselves away and stop living in order to avoid dying. Um,
1: yeah, and, and I think, you know, it'll be interesting what happens when the pandemic is over and, and people are let out. How will they cope with that, um, having to reconnect? Um, yeah, I, I have a real... Real fear for older people who are living alone. In fact, anyone who's living alone yes. may not be getting that day-to-day contact with people. It can be—I know myself. My wife's here with me, and we are—you um, know—we're doing okay. At my boy, uni, and not living here at the moment. But it's—it's um, it's difficult, even with two of us. It, it gets can get quite lonely. We're not having that interaction with others. Uh, you know, we're not seeing them as often as we would normally see them particularly your loved ones, it's, it's a tough time.
0: Yeah. And on, like I noticed that I mean, you said that when you were passing, your, your reaction was actually to reach out for human touch. And we have been told to not touch. And so I think that actually plays a psychological game with us as well. So we'll be seeing the effect of that is in the longer term as well.
1: Yeah, yeah, you know, just just not being able to shake hands with someone when you meet them for the first time. It's um, yeah, human touch is so important, and yeah, really. that's I think that's one of the real sad losses at the moment is this physical distance that we have to maintain. And I, I get it; it's important. Yeah, but it's it's another one of you know part of the crap that we're that we're dealing with as
0: part of this lockdown. We might wrap it up there, John. So thank you very much, and like um, thanks for sharing your thoughts just that very briefly there on the on the. The COVID situation as well but look really you know your story is just amazing the fact that you actually passed away twice and got revived twice um, and came back fighting is such an amazing story to hear like very very rarely do people actually get to hear stories from people that have actually like you said transitioned through to the other side and then transitioned back again but it's also nice to yeah. hear what that was like um, and the fact that they no longer have that fear <laughs> around that
1: no, Brett. Thank you for the opportunity to to share the story. Um, I I hope that maybe some of your listeners might identify with the the need to reprioritise their lives without having to go through a heart attack.
0: Yeah, hopefully that people can learn. We can all learn from, I guess, the the misfortune or fortune, whichever way. I think everything has a silver lining. We all learn from everything we do. I, I guess. Yeah. Um, but obviously it's a very painful yeah. experience and something that has long lasting effects on yourself and and your family for that matter as well. So thanks so much for sharing that. But before we do wrap up, just wondering if there's any advice that you'd like to share. So if there's three key things that advice that you would give. (laughs)
1: Great question. Yes. Yes, I would. Um, Particularly for blokes because we are woeful at following up health advice. Um, If you have, (laughs) if you have chest, if you have chest pain of any sort and the, just quickly, a few weeks afterwards, I had some more chest pain. I called the ambulance. It was not a heart attack. It was it was other other stuff going on. But the, the ambulance crew said to me, because I felt like a bit of an idiot for, for calling them, but they said to me, John, don't feel that way. She said, we have so many people that have chest pain. They don't call us in time. And guess what? They wind up dead. Um, so the first thing would be, if you've got any chest pain that is unexplained, follow it up. Because... Sure, it may be indigestion. In fact, ninety nine percent of the time, it may be something else. But you don't want to run that risk. Um, yeah. So I would, I would say, definitely follow that up. The other thing is, I had, I had blood pressure and cholesterol. It was probably it wasn't, it wasn't stratospheric, but it was just a little bit high. The past few times I'd gone to, you know, to the doctor about other things going on. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, don't don't wait for the doctor to to tell you that you need to take, you know, medicines for these. No one wants to take medicine, but um, unfortunately there are times when you need to take stuff to ameliorate the risk created by these other things as well. So that would be my second piece of advice. Um, You know, if you have a checkup and it points towards things that you need to do, get onto it straight away. And then lastly, I think something that I mentioned a bit earlier in the interview, and that's be kind to yourself as well, you know, Make time for you, because I, I think that's, that's really important. As men, we like to think that we are superhuman and we can do things for others uh, almost at will. But yeah. along the way, make sure you look after yourself as well.
0: Yeah, that's so important, isn't it, just to set that time aside. And I think yeah. that's probably one thing, as you mentioned, men don't do that particularly well. Um, they don't set that time aside to look after themselves mentally and physically yeah yeah dead right dead right yeah i guess spiritually too for that matter too like that obviously plays a big part in that in how centered we are and how we approach our day and how we approach our relationships with people so that that that's fantastic
1: dead right i I, I think um you know your medical health your your bodily health your mental health and your spiritual health are all three areas that um they're, they're three areas that should be given equal weight when we're looking after ourselves
0: Thank you so much, John, much appreciated. Uh, And I'm sure that i have got so much out of that. So thank you so much for sharing that with us today. Thanks very much.
1: And, And thanks for the opportunity, Brett. Thank you. Catch you later.
0: Well, there you have it. We've got through another podcast. And look, I just want to say a very big thank you to John. Thank you so much for sharing that story with us. If you'd like to learn more about John's story or would like to ask any questions, please. Send, send some questions through to me and uh, John said he'd be happy to answer some of those questions th- through me um, so please do that. Look it was a great and awesome, truly amazing story it's very insightful message and I think it really gives us time or gives us a message to take stock of who we are and what's important to us and like he said you know he wasn't thinking about how much more time he could spend at work as he was passing he was thinking about the things that were really important to him his family, his faith. And I think that's a strong message for all of us. What is really important to us, and if it is really important to us, like I know many of us, we can say, hey, you know, these things are important to us, but I think the truth behind that shows through our actions. If something is really important to us, where are we spending our time? Because where we spend our time will show, not just us, but other people, what actually is really important to us. If we spend our time, you know, binging on Netflix, well, then that's probably more important to us. If we spend our time out being healthy and exercising, well, that shows people that that's important to us. People see what we do and they look at what we do. They hear what we say for sure, but they're judging us on what we do because that's really the sign of what's important to us. So if you're saying family's important to to you, then it's time to... Put that and reprioritize that just as john has men- mentioned mentioned in his message there very timely because there are a lot of things there are a lot of stresses at the moment going around the world you know we've got this global pandemic we're really in the thick of this at the moment i know over here in australia we're stage four lockdown and people are really struggling in the mental space with that what does it mean to be locked up what does it mean to not be able to connect with people but they are in the same house with their family and a lot of the problems that some people just sort of push to the side because they can keep themselves busy with work, they can keep themselves busy out of the house, it sort of highlights a lot of those issues and you know, I know there are there are big concerns with domestic violence and breakdowns and mental health challenges because all these things start to constrict in on people because they are confined to one little space in their, in their house or in their yard, wherever that might be. So really, man, prioritize what's important for you and then be honest with that. Make the changes that you need to make and be a better man. So, look, I really hope that you enjoyed that episode. I know I did. It was a great, great message to bring through. Thanks again to John for sharing that with us. Hope you enjoyed it. See you next time.